Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. We're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch like our iconic niche legend dad hat at poppantheonpod.com in our merch store. And of course, we're available on Patreon, Pop Pantheon all access at patreon.com slash poppantheon where we are promising at least three bonus episodes of this show per month and right now actually the episode this week is a recording from our live show last week in los angeles which was called britney's memoir music and legacy i was on stage of course with usc's jason king beyond the blinds is troy mckitty and los angeles's kirby johnson talking all things britney from the book to her music why she's an important pop star and a little bit of pontificating on where she might fit into the pop pantheon so if you want to hear that discussion plus all the rest of our bonus content the only place to get it is patreon.com slash pop pantheon two gorgeous gorgeous is coming up tomorrow night november 10th in los angeles is gorgeous gorgeous la at resident in downtown we're doing an entire britney themed night including a britney power hour from 10 to 11 o'clock we're going to be celebrating the woman of the moment the woman in me britney spears so that will be tomorrow night friday november 10th at resident in downtown los angeles and then the following thursday following who weekly our favorite show our good friends over there are having their show at the Palladium in Times Square and following that show on Thursday, November 16th, Gorgeous Gorgeous and Who Weekly will be throwing an after party at the Dream Hotel in Midtown at their bar downstairs called Fishbowl. So if you are on either coast and you want to come dance to pop music all night, your options are both there. So ticket links for those parties will be in the show notes of this episode. I hope to see some of you guys out this weekend and next week. This week's episode is... A bit of a bittersweet one. It is about an artist who meant a lot to me as a kid who was definitely one of the coolest pop stars working at the time that I was coming of age and who of course is also shrouded in a ton of tragedy as someone who died tragically too soon at the age of 22 while she was just on her ascent to becoming a superstar. So without further ado, here is this week's pop pantheon, Aaliyah. At this point, to many, Aaliyah is a myth. Sure, anyone who was conscious and interested in great pop music in the 90s and early 2000s remembers the incredible, innovative hits. We also remember the iconic personal style, indelible music videos, the legendary dream team with Missy and Timberland, and the sly, seductive vocals. We remember, too, the controversy, namely her secret wedding to sexual predator R. Kelly when she was just a teenager. And of course, we all remember, or are at least aware of her tragic and untimely death in a plane crash in 2001 when she was just 22 years old cutting her life and her rise to superstardom painfully short. But the thing about an early death is that it can, in some ways, obscure an artist's true impact, turning them into more of an idea, a fable rather than an actual person and performer. Aaliyah is an image to many people, a superlative of 90s R&B cool factor. 20 plus years on, and she can sometimes feel flattened into a Pinterest mood board. But the good news about this particular artist who left us too soon is, when you actually open the hood and look at the parts that made up her career, that actually generated the lore, especially the music itself, it's often as momentous, memorable, and ingenious as the legend of Aaliyah would have you believe. Aaliyah wasn't here for a long time, but her myth is certainly worth the hype. If I, if I 
Aaliyah Dana Houghton was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Her father was a warehouse worker, and her mother was a vocalist who put Aaliyah in vocal lessons as a young girl. As a child, she sang in a church choir and at local charity events and weddings around Detroit. Her father's brother-in-law, Barry Hankerson, was an entertainment lawyer and record producer who married the soul legend Gladys Knight. Barry connected Aaliyah and Gladys, who had the aspiring singer join her on stage to perform during concerts, and accompanied Aaliyah on trips to New York to audition for commercials and TV shows. At age 11, Aaliyah appeared on Star Search, performing the show tune My Funny Valentine. Barry, then the manager of the on-the-rise R&B superstar R. Kelly, created his own label, Blackground Records, in part because the labels he was introducing Aaliyah to all said, at age 12, she was too young to sign. Eventually, he negotiated a distribution deal with Kelly's own label, Jive Records, for her debut album on the promise that Kelly would write and produce the project. Barry introduced Aaliyah to Kelly, and together the two created her debut album 1994's Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, which blended his trademark New Jack Swing style of R&B with Aaliyah's signature unassuming swagger and silky vocals. It also portrayed a sense of sexual maturity, which felt somewhat disturbingly beyond her 15 years. The album went double platinum and produced two top 10 hits, her savantish smooth take on the Isley Brothers' At Your Best, You Are Love, and the laid-back Jeep Rattler, Back and Forth. Age Ain't Nothing But a Number also led to a cascade of rumors about the nature of Aaliyah and Kelly's relationship, with speculation about a secret marriage. Vibe magazine eventually revealed a marriage certificate that showed a union took place on August 31st, 1994, when Kelly was 27 and Aaliyah was 15. The document erroneously listed her as 18. The marriage was annulled six months later by Aaliyah's parents in February 1995, and she severed all ties with Kelly, leaving Jive and signing a new deal with Atlantic Records. When Aaliyah returned to the studio to record a follow-up to her debut, she did so without Kelly in tow. Initially, Aaliyah linked up with Pup Daddy to produce the project, but they abandoned their work together and Aaliyah started working with a pair of then-unknown producers and songwriters, Timberland and Missy Elliott, who became the primary contributors to her sophomore effort, 1996's One in a Million. Considered in its time and retrospectively to be one of the most forward-thinking pieces of R&B futurism ever produced, the album re-established Aaliyah as a star in her own right, separate from the specter of Kelly. Timberland's stuttering, spacious, synthesizer-driven and rhythmically alien soundscapes on songs like the title track, If Your Girl Only Knew, and Hot Like Fire, and the way Aaliyah glided over them with both the ease and warmth of a soul crooner and a rapper's sense of rhythm, went on to set the template for the next decade of R&B music. Million went double platinum and produced one top 20 hit and two gold singles. It has since been listed as one of the best albums of the 90s by Rolling Stone, Vibe, Spin, Complex, and Pitchfork. Aaliyah's look in her music videos, with her baggy pants, sports bra, and sleek black shades became an emblem of mid-90s hip-hop fashion. The next year, Aaliyah graduated from her performing arts high school in Detroit and set her sights on Hollywood. In 1998, she contributed a song to the soundtrack of the Eddie Murphy film Dr. Doolittle, Are You That Somebody, produced by Timberland and written by Static Major. That song, one of the strangest and most thrilling pop hits in history, peaked at number 21 but has gone on to become Aaliyah's signature hit. In 1999, she landed her first major film role opposite Jet Li in the action flick Romeo must die. Her single from that soundtrack, the bonkers R&B come techno come acid house Marvel Try Again, again produced by Timberland and written by Major, became her one and only Hot 100 number one hit. <laughs> 
Following the success of Romeo Must Die and Try Again, Aaliyah snagged a starring role in an adaptation of Anne Rice's Queen of the Damned and began work on a self-titled third album. Released in 2001, that album furthered Aaliyah's blending of R&B traditionalism, the avant-garde, an array of other genre experiments, and most importantly, the sound of pop's future. It also featured much more mature lyrics focused on the nuances of love, woundedness, sexual abuse, complex working and romantic dynamics, and female empowerment. It was a critical success and sold 187 thousand copies in its first week, but sales quickly softened. Her label at the time, Virgin, sent her to the Bahamas to record a music video with Hype Williams for the album's third single, the electro-Caribbean nodding Rock the Boat. After filming was complete, Aaliyah boarded a small plane at the Marsh Harbor Airport at the Abaco Islands to return to the U.S. The airplane crashed almost immediately after takeoff, killing all eight passengers, including Aaliyah, on August 25th, 2001. Following her death, sales of the album soared, pushing it to the top of the Billboard 200. In total, it sold more than 13 million copies worldwide, becoming the last document of an artist who was only just beginning to come into her powers as one of the most exciting pop recording artists of her moment. Aaliyah has sold a reported 24 million copies worldwide. All three of her studio albums are platinum, as is her posthumous compilation album, I Care For You. She has one number one album, one number one single, and eight top 20 hits. She has one platinum single and five gold singles. Aaliyah won three American Music Awards, two MTV VMAs, a Billboard R&B Hip Hop Award, and an NAACP Image Award. She has been ranked as one of the top 50 female artists of all time by Billboard and the 40th best singer of all time by Rolling Stone. VH1 listed Aaliyah as one of the 40 greatest women of the video era and one of the 50 greatest women in music. Here with me to discuss the life and career of Aaliyah is the author of Baby Girl, better known as Aaliyah, Kathy Iondoli. All right, I'm here once again with writer and author of the book, Baby Girl, Better Known as Aaliyah. It's Kathy Yondali. Kathy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. It's my pleasure. Our Lana episode is perhaps the most popular artist episode of the show that has ever been done in two and a half years. So I know everyone's going to be thrilled to hear from you again. Of course, also, you're just a legend in general, but thrilled to have you back and also thrilled to have you back on a subject that I know you're truly an expert on. I guess that's what we always are doing here. We always have you on when I know you are the voice on the topic. <laughs> but you literally wrote the book on Aaliyah. And I was thinking about this. She was obviously a huge part of the generation of pop stars that were formative to me. I was born in 1987. So 94 to 2001 was my time of coming into myself as a music listener. So Aaliyah was very important to me. But the thing that sort of struck me on the highest level, digging back through her work and prepping for this episode was the multiple layers that you can experience it due to her early passing and also other definitive aspects of her biography, including her marriage to R. Kelly and what's come out about that over time. All of the music feels like to me, it operates both as a point of fascination on its own. She was an incredibly innovative and fascinating artist, right. whether she had passed or whether she had been surrounded by scandal in the way that she was throughout her career in life, but then also takes on this deeper, profound meaning 
and other kinds of emotions too, I guess, sadness, sympathy, all these things because of these extra musical narratives that are attached to her. And of course, because of the early death. I mean, when you think about an artist that really never got to live out the totality of what they were probably going to do, right. it adds a lot of context and meaning to music that maybe didn't ask for it in the first place, but is impossible to escape in that context. What made you interested in writing about her? And how do you think about Aaliyah's legacy if you try to separate it from the fact that we think of her so much as this tragic figure who died too soon. How do you process Aaliyah's work on its own? And then is it possible to process it on its own? For me personally, I was and still am a diehard Aaliyah fan. We're exactly the same age. We were like born a month apart from each other. So Aaliyah's entry point into the music industry was timed nearly perfectly to my active fandom in music Mm. around 15 years old, where you're now able to be dropped off at the record store that I actually started working at a year later, right? And being able to shop for yourself and determine who your favorites are without the filter of your parents. Mm-hmm. So with Aliyah, she was just so cool. Yeah. And she had this beautiful voice and she cut through so much of what was going on in music, even on a pop level at the time by being kind of like the difference. Mm. And when I became a writer years later, I continuously wrote about Aliyah. During milestone anniversaries, I would always pen some sort of a piece in memory of her. But even before that, you know, I saw Leah in concert. I had a very brief encounter with her. And in working in the music industry, we had never actually been able to like have our paths fully crossed, which is a huge regret of mine. But Mm. I was active in the music industry for two years prior to her passing. So when the time came to think about the next book that I was doing after God Save the Queens, I definitely wanted to write a book that still I held near and dear to my heart. The history of women in hip hop was a big deal for me as someone who is a woman in hip hop, Mm. but also had made the bulk of my writing career centered on women in hip hop. And I felt like Aaliyah was a nice continuation of that because for all intents and purposes, Aaliyah was also a woman in hip hop. Totally. So in thinking about this, you know, there was only one book that had come out right after she passed away. I personally didn't feel it encompassed the entire story, but also having access to people who were removed from it now 20 years and watching the fandom that actually only grew in the absence of her music on social media social media streaming platforms I mean <laughs> on streaming social media too sometimes yeah but yeah I really just wanted to tell this story of this phenomenal artist what could have been and how she still managed to make a huge impact while she was on the planet and even after she left yeah I was thinking about this too and I was remembering this haunting story that has stuck with me surrounding her passing which was I was 14 and my mother at the time was working as a fashion stylist and we went on vacation in August of 2001. We were in Europe and at that time you didn't have international cell phones. When you went on vacation, you just didn't get contacted. You didn't hear your messages. You weren't able to be in touch with people back in the world. So we were in Italy as a family when 
we heard about Aaliyah passing. And it was one of the last days of our vacation. We were all blown away by it. I don't know that my parents were super aware of her, but me and my sister were huge fans. And it was a huge deal. I remember like where I was standing like in the hotel room. And we flew back to New York maybe two days later and we landed and my parents flipped their cell phones on and they got all of the messages that they hadn't gotten over the two weeks or so that we were away. And one of the messages was magazine inquiring to have her style Aaliyah for some sort of shoot. Oh my gosh. And it had been left maybe a day, 24 hours before (gasps) she had passed. So it was almost like this haunting call from beyond. I just remember standing outside of JFK waiting for our car and my mom listening to this message and going ghostly white because it was just haunting and sad. And her passing, it was just tragic because she was so much just coming into herself as an artist. We did an episode on Amy Winehouse last year. It's a similar feeling, but Aaliyah only felt like she was on the ascent. And in listening to that last record, you can hear the artistic leaps and bounds that she was taking. And of course, her film career and all the stuff that was going on. So there was this feeling of unfulfilled potential. And yet, at the same time, so much great work got left behind. And it was so striking to me in listening to her music over the last few days. What an incredible innovator she was. I mean, I know it gets spoken about a lot, but... She really had achieved so much in such a short time and left us with a lot to chew on and made such a huge impact in terms of that kind of princely ability to meld the mainstream and the avant-garde or to find the tightrope act between innovation and accessibility. I feel like she really stands in that lineage and that legacy has allowed her to achieve mythic status in death. It's been an interesting thing to watch. I think her achievements almost feel more pronounced or more visible in broader pop culture as a result of the early passing than maybe they even seemed to us at the time. Do you feel like that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think that the phrase absence makes the heart grow fonder actually applies here too. And also don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I think both (laughs) of those really apply in the sense of recognizing the void that was left in Aliyah's passing. Mm. And I think that in the discovery and rediscovery of her music by fans of all ages, we're starting to see just how innovative she was because she was setting up a career that was going to be for the ages and go beyond what she even fathomed at that point. Mm. And also, I think for some reason, I felt like maybe in her time, what she did and why it was important wasn't as clear to us as it is in looking at so many of the artists that have come after her and are so clearly impacted by what she was doing. Everyone from Cassie to Rihanna, there's just so many artists and styles and her sort of ability to convey cool factor, her ability to know what was next, her ability to meld R&B history with R&B's future. These were things that maybe she didn't get totally recognized for because I think also in her lifetime, as we're going to discuss, she was often sort of seen inappropriately in the shadow of some of these other figures in her life, whether it was R. Kelly or whether it was Timberland Missy or whoever it was. I felt like she was just starting to begin to come into herself as kind of a front and center figure because also part of Aaliyah's charm and artistry is her sort of shyness, right? her subtleness, her ability to convey vulnerability through subtle, shy inflection, which is not something that we normally 
normally associate with the bombast of pop stardom, where people scream their presence and assert themselves at the center of every single thing. Like Aaliyah's gift was as a compliment or as a piece in a broader puzzle. Like she was so good at warping herself around those insanely intricate Timberland rhythms and beats, or she was fluid with a larger piece of music in a way that a lot of pop stars, I feel like, have this impulse to fight their way to the center or to the foreground. And Aaliyah was very comfortable being part of the mix. And I think that maybe obscured in the moment to some people exactly why she was so incredible. And that stature has built in the wake of having to process her very limited body of work in the wake of her untimely passing. Well, it wasn't a manufactured timidness. It wasn't like this constructed ingenue yes. who was just like, oh, gee, me. Yeah, right. She was just really that chill. And I think that that's a thing that lent itself to her having that mystique in her persona. But on top of all that, in the absence of her music on streaming platforms, there was an ability for artists to be inspired by her right. without having to outright credit her mm. on a playlist, let's say. Mm, interesting. Like you couldn't go and listen to a SZA song or a Kilani song mm. and then go right to an Aaliyah song and be like, oh, I hear that. That's so true. 100%. And also that was why it was so exciting when her music finally did come onto streaming a few years ago. Absolutely. And you realize how much of it sounds just as bonkers and contemporary now as it did in 96 or in 2001. Yes, totally holds up. It really does. I mean, some of these records, you could put them out today with very little alterations and they would sound completely at home in contemporary music, which is not something you can say for a lot of artists. All right. So let's go back and talk briefly about who Aaliyah is. I guess maybe the question I want to ask is, what do we need to understand about Aaliyah's early life? that helps us grasp the artist and performer and pop figure that she becomes. I mean, I think the biggest thing is understanding her natural born desire to want to do this. Yes. She was born in Brooklyn and then they moved to Detroit. Right. But she always wanted this. She was in a program at her school where she was taking part in these small musicals. Her uncle, Barry Hankerson, was married to Gladys Knight. Right. So there was a degree of connectivity to the music industry. But when I say this in my book, like most winners, she lost on Star Search. With a big voice and an even bigger dream. From Detroit, Michigan, welcome 10-year-old Aaliyah Hutton. Yeah, I was just reading Britney's book on the plane over to New York, and she's another one that famously lost on Star Search. Exactly. So there was a part of her that always wanted this. She knew she wanted it, but the thing was, the overarching opinion by the music industry was that she was just too young. Mm. And I think at that point, that's when her uncle decided, well, if the industry thinks that she's too young, then I'll be the one to move her ahead in her career. And I don't want to say in those early days that that was a problem because there really was just this kid who's like, listen, give me something to work with. And I think that's what was provided for her at that time. In the years that followed, we'll talk about that. But I think in the moment when Aliyah was in between the ages of 10 and 12, that's what she wanted. The funniest random bit of information that I got while writing the book that was just so bizarre to me was she was up for the audition of Judy Winslow on Family Matters. Right. <laughs> and I was just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> because that role seemingly just left. But 
there was always a balance of the acting and the singing too. And she had the quality about her. You know, her mother was a singer and a performer. Right. So it was in her. But I think at the heart of it, there was this tenacity. And from a familial standpoint, I think you kind of had to mobilize at that point and see where it could go. Right. So is your understanding of it that it was essentially looking at her mother that ignited that in her? Or are there other pop cultural figures we should think about in terms of inspirations to Aaliyah? Who are the people that you think are engendering this desire to become a performer, either in her own life or in pop culture more broadly during her upbringing? I mean, she was a huge Whitney Houston fan. Right. You're talking about an era where we had our huge R&B icons mm-hmm. that were coming to the surface into pop mainstream. Right. And I think that was one of the biggest things that shaped where Aaliyah believed she could go. I think five years ahead or even five years after, that might not have been in the realm of possibilities. But coming out in 1994, you had incredible examples of just what happens if you really do make it in that landscape. Right. And especially a huge moment of foregrounding for Black female entertainers in pop from Whitney to Mariah to Janet. 100%. This was a huge moment in which Black women were very central in pop mainstream in ways that I guess they had been in certain instances in the past, but it felt like a particular moment where the Black pop diva was having a very centralized moment in pop culture. 100%. And she was raised in Motown. Right. She was literally raised in Motown. And also, can you talk a little bit about Barry? I mean, obviously Barry is going to play an incredibly important role, both positively and negatively in Aaliyah's story. So as you mentioned, she also grows up with Gladys Knight in her life. I mean, Gladys Knight is her aunt, basically, and is bringing her on stage. They're performing together. She's spending a lot of time with her. I mean, she grows up with a mentor who is a pop superstar, an R&B soul superstar. He's Can you talk about who Barry is and what role he's playing? Even before he takes the lead in her career, what was he bringing into Aaliyah's life that opened her eyes to what could be possible for her? So, I mean, with Aaliyah, Aaliyah's family, they were in Brooklyn and Miguel, her father, I believe, had lost his job. And they moved out to Detroit because Barry had these warehouses where he had people working and stuff. And Miguel, Michael, who has since passed away as well, but he was able to work in one of these places. But also Barry kind of had this backdoor entry point into the music industry through TV production. Mm. And that's where he met Gladys Knight when they had married. However, I believe that they had already either been separated or divorced by the time Aliyah was born. But Gladys still kind of embraced both Aliyah and Rashad as her niece and nephew. Mm. But having Gladys there, she took Aaliyah to a couple of days for her Vegas residency where Aaliyah was able to perform. She kind of learned how to cut her teeth really early. And then she got back and it was like, no turning back. She started as kind of timid on one side of the stage and Gladys kind of coaxed her into actually performing. Mm. And, you know, you get bit by the bug. I mean, you're with a legend Mm -hmm. who's your aunt and you're on a massive stage, one that rarely will a child ever get to experience. Right. So again, that only adds to the realm of possibilities for Aliyah. Mm. Like where she can go. Right. She's watching a living legend stand beside her. Right. And she's performing alongside her. Mm-hmm. There was no turning back. Right. 
And then Barry essentially pivots himself into music industry stuff. She starts pursuing this career in entertainment. She auditions for Family Matters. As you mentioned, she is acting in school plays. She's an Annie as a child, I was reading. Right. And then basically, Hankerson takes control over her career at a certain point and is trying to get her a deal with MCA Records. She's a Whitney Houston fan. She performs and records covers of The Greatest Love of All, et cetera, et cetera. She performs on Star Shirts. Does he take an active role or interest in then helping to sort of parlay her actual career at that point in her early teens? Yeah, I mean, Barry and his son Jomo were kind of figuring out what is the best way to structure this. But at the same time, Barry is working with another R&B artist who he happened to stumble upon in Chicago. Mm. And I think that there was some sort of synchronicity in the idea of really wanting to push your niece's career Mm. while acknowledging that you are now working with an artist who is en route to being an R&B superstar Mm. and being able to recognize how you can leverage that favorably. Mm. And that person is just to lay it out for people. Yeah, I mean, you know, R. Kelly. Yes. And it's going to be one of few times I say his name in this episode. Yeah. So... Yeah, that guy. He goes ahead and there's this career that's brewing and that guy becomes a big star. Barry kind of circles back to Jive, the same place that said that Aaliyah was too young, Mm -hmm. and says, well, what if I told you that guy is writing and producing her project? Mm. And then it becomes the bargaining chip, because at that point, that guy is topping the charts, selling out shows, all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just a testament to the unfortunate idea that it's fine if a record label says this artist is too young, but then it's somehow acceptable that you say, well, what if we have her working? with a grown man who talks about sex and they're like, you've got a deal. It really is disturbing in so many ways because I've been so immersed in Britney's book. The parallels here are truly spine tingling. I know. I mean, right down to Clive Calder who signed both of them to Jive. Yep. And the way that Britney talks about this strange interplay in her own mind as she watched people absorb her as a teen between wanting to exploit her sexually and then also to keep her virginic and sort of play on her childlikeness and be attracted to her childlikeness and also sexualize her as a minor. I mean, there's so many creepy parallels here that make you think about this time period. I mean, as you said, there is something chilling about the idea that part of what allowed Clive Calder and Jive to say, let's go with this, is because this hypersexualized older man was now involved in crafting the music and persona of a 14-year-old girl at this time. Yeah, It's disturbing, honestly. It's hugely disturbing, but I think also we have to talk a bit about the idea of Britney and Aaliyah in some ways ran concurrently in terms of the disturbing handling of their careers, but they weren't exactly parallels because Brittany was able to wear school uniforms showing off her bare midriff regardless little pigtails doing her thing with Aaliyah the goal was to make her appear older right and you have your project being called AJ nothing but a number Mm. 
Mm. Anytime they asked her how old she was, she used to say, it's a secret. Shh. Has told us that's her new debut album, right? Yes, but you is. won't reveal your age, will you? It's a secret, Mom. Oh, come team. on. We and then not to mention that guy is being marketed as younger. Right. He's walking around in these leather vests and being all oh, in his interviews, like, golly gee, I just sang. So what it allowed for was for people to think that she was older and he was younger mm. and that they were able to meet in the middle. Right, and Britney's music was much more explicitly, at least on the surface, marketed as tween music, whereas Aaliyah's was supposed to be more of a mature POV. Yeah, I mean, please, Britney was also hypersexualized by the men around her. Yes, of course. I think the difference is there was a clock over her when she turned 18. With Aaliyah, you didn't actually know if she was 18. Right, right, right. I know that this is uncomfortable, but I just feel like it's important in telling the story for audiences who did not grow up in the heyday of R. Kelly and understand what his persona was like prior to working on Aging Nothing But a Number. How would you describe what his music is like and what his public persona is like to music consumers? So he started out busking in Chicago, being a street performer before he linked with his group Public Announcement. They had been locked into a rather shady deal that Barry was able to help pull him out of. Mm -hmm. While he was trying to figure himself out as this solo artist, you know, he started recognizing that while he had a great voice and a great stage presence, he wasn't competing with the other artists that were around him at the time. So what became kind of this hard pivot was to go into this direction of hypersexualization and overabundance of love and romance and having this idea of understanding what women want without women even knowing what they want. Mm, interesting. It seems like you're And in doing so, he tapped into this part of the female psyche that really galvanized a fan base mm. that allowed for like an incredible success story. Yes. I will say that. Keeping that in mind and being able to make really sticky tunes. He was unfortunately very talented. Absolutely. Yeah. And had a background in singing mm -hmm. and really just used that marketing edge to leverage what came next. So having that in your tool belt. Yes. And then being the darling at your record label because of that. Right. Because I wouldn't say R. Kelly was part of the new Jack Swing era. Right. He was kind of leading it in a way right. that was very different from Jodeci mm -hmm. and other acts, H-Town, let's say. Those artists who are still singing about sex, but... The way he did it was a little different, and I think it boiled down to the songwriting and the production of it. But what happens when you take that energy and you put it into a young woman? Right. It turns into something totally different. Mm -hmm. And when you're buffing out her age, that becomes an unfortunate 
winning combination. Jeez. Okay. So this is another really uncomfortable part of this conversation, but essentially Calder and Hankerson set R. Kelly and Aaliyah to work on, as you mentioned, her debut album, which is 1994's AJ Nothing But a Number. Right. At which point we now understand he essentially became sexually involved with her. Can you talk a little bit about what happened during the recording of that record? Well, there's controversy as to what exactly happened during the time period. Aaliyah met that guy when she was like 12, I believe. They got into the studio. Rumor has it that the relationship began that first studio session. Mm -hmm. I cringe to even call it a relationship because that's not what it was. Yes, right. Exactly. But there was always something that rubbed me the wrong way that wasn't particularly mentioned in the first book about her in 2001. Mm -hmm. They drew this parallel to coming for the music and staying for the love and put this thing together of like, these things happen in the studio. I forget the artists that were mentioned, something like a John and Yoko or something like that, right? Right. Even like a Lauren Hill and Wyclef Jean, this idea of spending all this time in the studio and you're writing this intense project and nobody is addressing the fact that he's pushing 30 and she's just in the heart of her teens. Whatever happens, what it results in is a marriage that ultimately had to be rather swiftly annulled. Right. There's rumors about what was the reason for the marriage. Some have speculated and even mentioned in the courts that there was a pregnancy. I don't even know what happened with it, but it had to be annulled. And there was also these weird signs. They were dressed the same, which was like a really big thing for Chicago couples in Aaliyah's back and forth video. She's got a license plate from Chicago on her backside. They're both wearing like Mickey Mouse shirts, which seems ridiculous why he would be wearing one or Tasmanian Devil. Looney Tunes was a big thing. Right. And then there's this one interview on BT where they ask that guy if he's romantically involved with her. And he says something to the effect of, I better jump in my white Jeep. I think he says something like that, meaning the white Bronco to like allude to OJ Simpson driving away from his guilt. Yeah. Okay, let's clear something up because you know I've been getting a rundown on the street. Every Everybody seems to think that y'all are either girlfriend or boyfriend or cousins or friends. <laughs> just let's, let's just get the record straight. <laughs> you better go get me a white Jeep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, no, we're not related. Someone said something to me during my run in promoting the book, a seasoned industry veteran who said to me that there was this music industry thing that guys used to say about women who were younger. It transcends music, but it was something that they used to say to each other. And it was, if there's grass on the field, play ball. Jeez. It's just all so terrible and gross. And the thing about it is it's got very little to do with the fact that for years that was the only project we can hear of hers. Right. It's got little to do with the agreement that had been structured where she was not allowed to discuss any of the abuse publicly. It has little to do with that too. What it has to do with is the fact that at 15 years old, this little girl was then dragged by the fan bases right. and the media right. as being being the source of fault and being booed for leaving the situation. Right. This is one of the sickest aspects of this whole story, honestly. It's disgusting. And obviously, we're going to get into Timbaland and Missy. Add to that her trying to go into her next project and producers and songwriters being reluctant to work with her because they were afraid they couldn't get back in the studio with that guy. Right. So I don't consider AJ nothing but a number to be Aliyah's most iconic moment, not by a long shot. No. (laughs) So so the fact 
that she was able to rise so far above it without him says a lot. Yes, right. Says everything. So let's talk about Age Ain't Nothing But a Number as music. So this record comes out in 94. It's a very successful debut album. It is. It sells 3 million copies in the United States and it has a couple top 10 hits. Let's talk about this as music. So R. Kelly writes and produces every song on this record. How would you describe what is happening here musically? We've talked a little bit about the persona that it puts forth of a young girl, but one who is fully sexually mature, or at least is sort of posing in that way. Mm -hmm. Of course, it cannot be reiterated enough that she is speaking words put into her mouth by a 30-year-old man. That is something that underlies every aspect of this. But how would you describe this as music? I mean, musically... When I re-listen to this project, it's kind of all over the place. Mm. I can remember the day, obviously, that Aaliyah passed away, but I also remember the day that I first saw Aaliyah. I was watching MTV and the back and forth video premiered. Let me see you go back. And the thing about back and forth was it was like had elements of hip hop, yeah. had elements of pop, R and B, and it was just a smooth song with like a hip hop beat, and like she was kind of just in it. That song should have encapsulated the Aliyah aesthetic, but it didn't right. because the project goes into so many different directions where I think at that point, R. Kelly was throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what stuck. Right. AJ, nothing but a number super problematic song but also was a really solid R&B record her cover of At Your Best You Are Love I think was probably the centerpiece of that project yeah a song that conveys the beautiful part of her weirdly adult maturity without it being over sexualized like it's the one moment on this record where you actually see the true savantishness of Aaliyah not with some older man trying to make her seem more sexually mature than she was but actually what a beautiful interpreter of R&B music she was because she really owned this song It kind of reminds me a little bit of Michael Jackson singing I'll Be There or something like that, not to bring another abuser into the chat. But it's such a beautiful rendition of that song. Well, yeah, it's because R. Kelly didn't write it. Yeah. So it didn't have his <laughs> weird fingerprints on it. It's an Isley record. Yes. That's the reason why we were able to get the purity of Aliyah's voice, because it wasn't run through the filter of how can I have you sing my innocence into this album? Yeah. Because it's really what it boils down to. Right. It's kind of like, if I can make this child keep posturing herself as older, mm. then whatever happens after that just makes her look like she's a quote unquote grown and fast girl, which wasn't the case, right? Right. Then there was these weird... There's that one song where he keeps saying, Aaliyah, you're the only one for me, which is just bizarre. Leah, you're the only one for me. Leah, you're the only one for me. Leah, you're the only one for me. The one for me. The one for me. But then there's moments where there's a heavy new Jack Swing element. Yes. Kind of catering to what was going on at the time. Right. It's very of its moment. A lot of her future music is so futuristic, honestly, and feels completely out of time in the most incredible way that pop music ever can. Yeah. This record, sonically and aesthetically, feels very, very much like 1994. It's stuck there. Yeah. When that guy wasn't creating songs where he was able to make her look like she was 
grown and sexy for his benefit or the male gaze, whatever, the rest of the project is lazy. Yes. And redundant and kind of boring. Yes. To me, what I feel like when I listen to this record is the singles are great, even in their complexity. Sure. Back and forth is incredible. AJ, nothing but a number, even though it's incredibly icky in context, is a really good song. And the Izzy Brothers cover is great. But a lot of this record feels rote and redundant to me. Right. There's two things I want to point out about this, one of which is related to R. Kelly and one of which I think sets up two other interesting parts parts of Aaliyah's public persona and image that I want to discuss to set up her post-R. Kelly music, which is the R. Kelly-related thing is that you were talking earlier about the way that the world kind of blamed her for the relationship right. and the music industry turned on her for this pedophilic relationship with this man. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think about the way that he positions her on this record as the aggressor towards an older man. Right. R. Kelly writes the lyrics for Aaliyah to sing. There's a lyric on age ain't nothing but a number. Take my hand and come with me. Let me show you to ecstasy. Yep. Boy, be brave. Don't be afraid. Cause tonight we're gonna go all the way. positioning this 15-year-old girl as the person that is seducing this man yep. in this song that's explicitly about dating an older man. Yep. It is so disturbing and so insidious. It's almost masterminding his own ability to presume innocence in the situation. It's like, yeah. she seduced me. It was actually me who had to be brave, quote unquote, and follow her seductive ways. I mean, it is so disturbing to listen to those lyrics in the context of what we know about this. It's absolutely gross. The other thing that I wanted to say that comes up a lot on this music is her ability to arrest while also being placid and soothing is something that I think she conveys through a lot of this music that continues to be something she refines. She's incredibly intoxicating as a vocal presence right. in a way where she is almost gliding through this music and never stabbing you in the face in the way that so many of her contemporaries are. I mean, you were mentioning Whitney and Mariah. These are two artists that are completely screaming at you. <laughs> you know, Aaliyah is very much not that. And the other thing was that there's this constant sort of positioning of her as one foot in the past and one foot in the future, which I think kind of does begin to define who Aaliyah is, someone who really knows about R&B history and hip hop history, but is also drawing the future of these genres. Absolutely. She says on back and forth, I got a jazz- Jazz personality. Yeah, street mentality. I'm reverent to the genre's past, but I'm also a kid of the current moment. Right. She talks a lot about those things. What is Aaliyah's image like? Because obviously what she looks like, what she wears, how she presents herself is an incredibly important part of Aaliyah's legacy and iconography. Can you just describe what she's presented like satorially, et cetera? So she was styled by April Walker of Walker Wear and her team. And in those early stages for this project, R. Kelly basically came in and wanted her to look like essentially a female version of him. Right. And that's what you saw. The saggy jeans, bare midriff, and then that leather vest. She wore a bandana, and then she had those really dark glasses that he would wear as well. Right. And it was bizarre. It did get the ball rolling for what would ultimately become 
Lealia style. Mm-hmm. But after that project, she learned how to embody it for herself. Right. And add other subtleties and differences that maintained the brand integrity of the person we first met. Right. But allowed for significant evolution by the time that next project came around. That could be said of the music too, I think, actually. Everything you just said. Because Aaliyah is such an incredible force and incredible voice that even through all of this sort of programming by R. Kelly, whether we're talking about the clothes or the music here, she still comes through. She's still a very arresting singular presence in look and sound on this music. And yet at the same time, you feel the sense that she's being fed this shit in a way that does not come across on the other two albums at all. Well, it's because of the tone of her voice. I don't think it has to do with actually genre specific. Like I don't hear back and forth in any of her later projects or at your best or aging nothing but a number. But what I do hear is Alia's own self-recognition that she's not a balladeer. Interesting. She understands her vocals and she has such control over her voice Mm. that yeah I mean her falsetto is impeccable she didn't always use it we heard it on at your best at the beginning when she's singing let me know you hear it you're like wow let me know She just controlled her voice in a way where she understood how to insert her voice into production, where it almost felt like she was a part of the beat. A hundred percent. And also the effortless cool. Yes. I mean, she is the cool girl. That's here on this music as well and how she looks. You look at her and you want to dress like her. She's incredibly beautiful, but then that tomboyish look, like there's something alluring and fascinating and aspirational about how she appears in this time. And that only continues to be refined as she takes more ownership over her work and look and everything about herself as she extradites herself from R. Kelly. So basically, as we mentioned, AJ Nothing But A Number is a significant hit. It establishes Aaliyah as an up-and-coming R&B and crossover pop star. She has two top 10 hits. The record sells 3 million copies worldwide. And as you mentioned behind the scenes, she marries and then divorces R. Kelly and cuts off contact with him, essentially, and ends her relationship with Jive and moves record labels to Atlantic? Yes. So how does that all get orchestrated as we set up this next album? So there's some sort of an agreement acknowledging the split. She can't publicly discuss any of the horrible details that had happened. Barry plays mediator and ultimately becomes kind of the guardian of her catalog or whatever. Right. We should also mention that from the original deal, and this is going to come into play later, especially with the streaming conversation, she signed both to Jive and both to Atlantic, but also to Barry's own record label, which is called Blackground Records, which is also kind of important here. Yeah, so the legalities of this are interesting to say the least because Jive didn't exactly want to get rid of her. Right. Team Aliyah preferably wanted to get rid of that guy from Jive, which was never going to happen. Right. So what happened essentially is she was signed to Atlantic and Blackground Barry and Jomo's label while still having what I guess you could call like a sunset clause with Jive. So she was no longer signed to Jive, but Jive still had in on some of the money that she would be making in her next project to kind of fulfill that deal that they reluctantly got her out of. Right. I see. So she signs this new deal with Atlantic. So she signed both to Barry's own label and to Atlantic at the same time. Yes. And as we mentioned before this, because of the public narrative around her and Kelly's fallout, she's getting a lot of the public blame for this. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what the narrative around Aaliyah is and how that plays out in the fact that she's having trouble, as you mentioned, once Kelly is no longer part of the artistic team here, finding people to work on her second album? Yeah, I mean... 
When you look at one in a million, and I touched upon the reluctance of producers to not want to work with her as songwriters because of that fear of not being able to work with that guy. Right. What you hear, there is a very, very specific split in sound on one in a million. Yes, there is. Half of the project is a hodgepodge of the producers who were willing to work with her. Right. And the other half is when the dream team started. Right, exactly. So you did have people who were willing to work with her. To be honest, <laughs> the biggest risk taking that she had to take on this project in who she aligned with were actually Missy and Timberland. Oh, for sure. Because at that point, Missy and Timberland, we should say, who are going to come in and play such a huge role in the second record are nobodies, essentially, right? Well, they're expats from their own traumatic situation. Which was? They were a part of what was called Swing Mob, right. which was led by Devante Swing of Jodeci. And he had assembled this huge camp right. in upstate New York where he... He had a bunch of people, including Timbaland, Missy, the late Magoo, the late Static Major, Genuine, legendary engineer Jimmy Douglas. Yes. And they were all trying to put together the second Jodeci project, the show, the after party, the hotel. And it became kind of like this Hunger Game situation (laughs) where there was these kids upstate where they weren't being fed and they were in this rigorous schedule where they had to compete with each other and really just go at it. It was a really toxic environment for everyone who was a part of it. Right. Missy was the first to leave. Timbaland followed. So they were really trying to figure out what are we doing now? Because we lost our connection to this huge person. And then at first, Sean Puffy Combs was supposed to be at the helm of the second project. Mm. But there was the situation involving Tupac and Biggie and then having to really cater to Biggie's career at that point. It was still a year out from unfortunately losing him. There was a difficulty in getting access to people, but we had KG from Naughty by Nature who lent his beats and stuff. And she did work with Dark Child. She worked with Jermaine Dupree. There were some names. Right. I think more importantly, the problem came in this second album, Who Is She? Right. How do we identify this identity of a person? Because at this point now, she's 17, going on 18. How do you define this artist who was under the wing of someone so terrible and yet she is still so talented? Right. And whose entire oeuvre to that point had been created by that person. Uh Uh-huh. So she had to really figure out who am I as a musician outside of this? And I think what's so interesting about the Timberland and Missy connection is the other thing that's important to say about them is they're making incredibly bonkers sounding music. 100%. If there's a sort of roteness to the New Jack Swing and post-New Jack Swing stylings of AJ Nothing But a Number era R. Kelly productions, what Missy and Timberland are doing are moving the genre entirely beyond that movement in hip-hop, R&B, and pop, and trying to find what the future of pop music sounds like and what the future of R&B music and hip-hop sounds like by essentially creating these arrhythmic, stuttering, synthesizer-driven musical arrangements that really did not sound like anything else. And I think the sort of aha moment is they brought that stuff into a meeting with Aaliyah and basically Aaliyah got them. That was kind of the thing is that unlike a lot of artists who probably might have heard what they were doing and been like, what the fuck is this? Right. Aaliyah really understood from the beginning what they were doing and why these innovations were the future of music. And they certainly were. And they're some of the most innovative and forward thinking music productions in the history of pop music. And Aaliyah spotted that. 
How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash poppantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. One of her talents is curation. I mean, Aaliyah's definitely somebody that knows what's cool and knew what would work for her and how to bring those two things together. She spotted the most important producer of the modern era before he was famous and knew that that would be the thing. Yeah, I mean, what happened was once Missy and Timbaland left Swing Mob, Missy had secured that spot on the uh, Gina Thompson remix. The thing you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forget the other. Yeah. <laughs> I'm to use like shoes or you who's and I choose from the fly things that you do. You know, Craig Hellman. Who is the president of Atlantic. Yes. Had told Timbaland and Missy, he has this artist that's looking for beats. And funny enough, they had still been working with Genuine for his Sony project for uh, Genuine the Bachelor. Yeah. And I feel like after listening to the audiobook of Britney, I can't say Genuine without saying Fauches, Fauches. Fauches, Fauches. But Genuine was <laughs> working on his solo debut album and actually gave up his studio time to get Aliyah in the studio to record for a different label's project. So Craig Kalman says, hey, Aliyah's looking for music. Missy and Timbaland send a demo over to Barry and Jomo, a song that ends up going to kind of like a relatively unknown R&B group. But at the time, they didn't like the song. They said it was too kiddish. Mm. And Aliyah heard it and she's like, yeah, no, but there's something there. Yeah. And not only did she hear something there, but she heard something in a very rough demo that actually didn't pop. Right. So they got together and I believe the first track they actually cut was One in a Million. Mm. So if that's the first song when your forces are joined. Yeah, you've got something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is just one of my all time favorite songs. Baby, you don't know what you do to me. Between me and you, I feel like chemistry. Can you describe One in a Million and like why it's so innovative and what makes it so special? Well, there's that zigzagging production that Timbaland knows how to do in the way of combining electronic elements with R&B. But then it's Aaliyah using her voice as this flexible instrument where she vacillates between tones. Mm. It's sexy, but it's also vulnerable. It's like a quintessential love song for people who are diametrically opposed to love. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I love that. It's so fascinating to listen to One in a Million as the genesis of the Timberland thing because that sort of skittering drum programming that collects drum noises in one part of the phrase and then it creates massive amounts of luscious space in the rest of it. You almost don't know where the drum is going to hit.
it creates kind of like an unpredictable, unnerving atmosphere at the same time as this song is one of the smoothest and most sultry sounding R&B love ballads. It's this real juxtaposition that makes it very dynamic to listen to. And there's that wah-wah bass that feels indebted to love R&B songs of the past, but also these electronic synthesizer noises. The way I think about it, it's almost like a soundscape. They create these dense worlds, these Timberland beats, and Aaliyah almost sounds like she glides through through them. All around her is this complex, unpredictable, and fascinating architecture, and she is able to just sort of skate her way in this sultry, effortless way through the soundscape, and it's that combination that I think makes them such a dynamic trio. Her smoothness, her ease works so well against the unpredictability and arrhythmic feel of the Timberland's drum programming stuff. They're such an incredible combination. Yeah. It sounds like the Wi-Fi is cutting out in the best way possible. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cricket noises, all these weird sound effect elements. Yeah. But when she sings, when the beat is stuttering, yeah. then she's singing and stopping. Baby, you don't know what you do yeah. to me. Baby, you don't know. To the same stuttering. And then when the song erupts in the hook yes. and becomes just this smooth, symphonic sound, then she belts with it. Right. She understood music just so well. Yeah. And also that, I think, speaks to her student of hip-hop or product of hip-hop culture. She has a real sense of rhythm, as you mentioned. The syncopation, the way she knows how to flow in some ways like a rapper. She's not really rapping, but there's a real sense of rhythm that I think is very important to why Aaliyah is a product of the hip-hop generation, which is such an important element of her public persona, her on-record persona. And this song in particular, I mean, you can't really speak enough about how this sets the table, both for Are You That Somebody, obviously, but also songs like Say My Name or so many Dark Child songs or even Genie in a Bottle. None of these songs exist without Timberland, Missy, and Aaliyah sort of taking R&B into the next wave, abandoning the four-on-the-floor New Jack Swing sound and essentially going for something entirely different that feels borderline avant-garde. It's really halfway between radio R&B and something that sounds almost completely out of the mainstream, which is kind of the balance I think a lot of Great Aaliyah songs sound like. Can you talk about the rest of Timberland and Missy's contributions to One in a Million and why they are so dynamic and so venerated as some of the most important R&B records of this decade? I mean, obviously the first single, If Your Girl Only Knew, is Ooh. this wicked snaking bass line. Mm -hmm. Again, this aggressive but subtle seduction on the part of Aaliyah, who I feel like her on-record persona is much more embodied and confident here, but without ever losing the sense that she's kind of the shy wallflower at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think what was able to happen, and we see this in If Your Girl Only Knew, is the relaxed nature of Aaliyah was not being almost weaponized in the music like it was in the previous project. Mm. Now it was the girl who was chilling in the club being like, no, you come to me. Mm. I'm not getting up. A hundred percent. That is so true. I don't have a pen. Exactly. It elevated the cool of Aaliyah. She still had the dark glasses on, but we get to see her eyes toward the end of the video and they keep changing shade, which is cool. It was the perfect way to reintroduce 
introduce this artist. Yes. If Your Girl Only Knew also, I think, introduces another part of what I think becomes an important element to Aaliyah's on-record persona, which is she's kind of comfortable dealing with darkness in terms of romantic relationships in her character. If Your Girl Only Knew is a really interesting POV where she is both kind of chastising this man for cheating on his girlfriend with her, but also kind of enjoying the attention at the same time. It's kind of like she enjoys being a not totally clean situation. I mean, she's the mistress in this song. No, she relishes in trolling, but that's the thing. She's not the mistress. The best part about it is she's rejecting being the mistress. Mm. In AJ Nothing But A Number, she's trying to lure this older man. Right. And if your girl only knew, she's like, what do you think you're doing? But she's also enjoying seducing him at the same time. She says, I would like to kick it with you. Yeah, I mean, she's trolling him. Yes. But she's saying to him, hey, if your girl only knew the way that you're fantasizing about me and not her, she's probably going to leave your ass. Yes. But then it also (laughs) adds an ellipsis at the end of the song. It's kind of like, well, when you are single, call me. Right. And the thing that I like (laughs) about that is it's actually ironically far more innocent than her previous project. Mm. Because she is kind of being like, hey, when you're not so messy you know where to find me. So true. That's very interesting. It actually, it sounds age appropriate. Super age appropriate. Why are you at the mall with me when I saw you with your girl? And you can't get past the fact that she's singing lyrics written to her by another woman. I mean, that's a huge thing that we can't go without saying here is that it's so nice to hear Aaliyah in collaboration on these songs with a woman. With Missy, yes. Yes. It's so obvious on the early music that she's singing music that a creepy criminal older man might like a 15 year old girl to sing. Whereas on this music, you really can hear the subtlety of two women coming together to express something from a woman's point of view. And it's really nice to hear that on this music. Yes. Let's not forget, though, an important point to note is that Aaliyah would get her lyrics, go into the studio with Jimmy Douglas along the beat, and she would improvise additionally into the song. Right. So this is someone who knew how to be a songwriter while it was happening. Right. She doesn't get that credit at all. Right. And actually literally did not get credits. Literally at all. Yeah. Right. There's only one song where I believe Aaliyah has her credit on a song called Death of a Player that she wrote with her brother, which was a B-side to a single. Right. But you are talking about someone who would get in the studio maybe she just didn't understand that when it came to men if a guy comes in the studio and says you should add an extra yes to the song they get on the songwriting credits right right but Aaliyah would go in and would take the lyrics and then she would improvise over them and I mean that's also brilliant and also sang against the beat at times even though there's reference tracks she would go in and for the first time ever be able to flex her artistic muscles yeah and you know that's also true I think it's so fascinating to think of her as someone that didn't even jump to get that credit because that kind of plays into what we were talking about in terms of her as a vocalist as someone that isn't clamoring to have all the spotlight in her you get a sense of the collaboration in this music right Timberland and Missy's voices are all over Aaliyah is somebody that kind of was magnanimous in terms of how she presented her artistry and in, in thinking about a lot of the juxtaposition positions that make this music interesting. I was also thinking about the fact that there's a lot of dissonant, alien-sounding features to the Timberland productions. Like, you think about a song like Hot Like Fire, literally sounds like it's beamed in from another fucking universe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
the reason that Aaliyah works as such a great compliment is she's so warm sounding. She's so human sounding. There's something very embracing and cozy about listening to Aaliyah sing. And I think there is something also about the juxtaposition between the sort of alienness of the Timberland and Missy stuff with the very human accessible warmth that Aaliyah brings in terms of how she sings. That juxtaposition is very powerful in this music to me. Oh, always. And we were talking about the jazz mentality, Jeep, whatever thing, the sort of past and present melding. You think about a song like Four Page Letter, another stuttering Timberland. I mean, I love, Kathy, I love this song so much. What I love about it is it sounds so futuristic, but it's very directly hearkening back to the girl group aesthetics of the 1950s or the sort of thematic concerns. Mm -hmm. I thought about Dear Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, the stories of these girls waiting for letters from their boyfriends. And and also Mama Said by the Shirelles. She literally opens the song saying, Mama always told me to be careful about who I love and daddy always told me to make sure he's right. Mama always told me to be careful who I love and daddy always told me make sure he's right. There's this connection between R&B and black music's past and future that she's very consciously embodying on a lot of these songs. Yeah, I mean, Four Page Letter was brilliant. Also very innocent, right? Yes, totally. That's such an important point. Very age appropriate. Almost younger than she was in a way. I'm sending him a four page And I mean, Hot Life Fire was super sexy, but it didn't feel creepy. No, more cool, more playing on her cool factor as opposed to over-sexualizing her. Yeah, and then you just really, like I said before, you just hear the split. You do, it's like two separate albums in one thing. Yes. 100%. And as an album listen, it actually suffers from that, in my opinion. I agree. I think that this is an album that has half the most brilliant R&B songs of the middle of the 1990s, and then half a group of songs, some of which are fine. You've got A Girl Like You, which sounds like a total throwback to the New Jack Swing R. Kelly songs, which is a good song. And then you've got a couple covers here that are clearly trying to capitalize on the at your best thing. Yes. Including another Isley Brothers cover, which is Choosy Lover, a kind of superfluous cover of Marvin Gaye's God to Give You Up, which can be called Fine, I think. And then you have a lot of songs on the back half of this record produced by other people that really just feel like this album would have been a more cohesive listen without them, I felt like. The Timberland and Missy songs are really what matter here, in my opinion. Yeah, if we're looking by timestamps, I think if this album released in 2023, it could have just been the Timbaland Missy collaborations and Liv does a really strong EP. Yes. A nice yes. seven track yeah. album, you know? Yeah. And that giant comedy of the whole thing, Kathy, is a song that I think almost nobody remembers is the biggest hit of this record, which is a literal Diane Warren written ballad that kind of sounds like a precursor to Brandy's Have You Ever called right. The One I Gave My Heart To, which literally, Kathy, I didn't even remember this song until I was re-listening to this record because when I think about One in a Million I think about Hot Like Fire One in a Million If Your Girl Only Knew those are the songs that I remember from this record but this was the only top 10 hit from this album is this Diane Warren ballad that's a huge outlier on it
Nobody was ready for what One in a Million was bringing to the table. One in a Million definitely killed it in urban. Right. But on the mainstream side, no. But it really wasn't like a blockbuster album, right? I mean, this is an album that's kind of in retrospect been seen as incredibly yeah. innovative, but it wasn't like crazy, sexy, cool or something like that. It barely made the top 10. Right. But I think what happened, in my opinion, yeah. is after the Dr. Doolittle soundtrack and right. Romeo Must Die, people then revisited right. pretty quickly. Right. And I think it became, like, this is such a stupid term, Kathy, you're probably going to laugh when I bring it up. It's a relic of a pastime. But I think it's one of those records that is kind of like a progenitor of PBR&B. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of racial undertones to that terminology, but it's essentially this moment where white hipsters recognize that R&B is innovative and cool. And right. Janet's The Velvet Rope was part of this, which came out like a year or two after this. There was this moment where white hipster music intelligentsia were like, wait a second, R&B music is actually cool and innovative and we can sort of think of it in the same way that we think of indie rock or something like that. And I feel like as Poptimism built and as these movements took shape, people went back and looked back at One in a Million and it was almost through that lens that it grew in stature after its release. And as someone who worked at a record store and stocked the rap R&B and the electronic sections, yes. I can say that what really had the hipsters spinning the block, so to speak, on this yeah. is because of the electronic music undertones. Because mm. at the time, we're talking about raver culture being in full swing. Mm. Planet Soul and Charlotte Skin and Sony. Right. <laughs> Amber, gosh, Labouche, RIP. When you're getting this version of an elevated real McCoy or whomever and you're adding R&B to it. Yeah, right. It was able to be fed to that audience in something that they understood. Right. White audiences, because at this point we didn't offend an entire genre by using the phrase blue-eyed soul. We hadn't done that yet. Right, right, right. So what it was doing was it was giving that audience a reference point mm. that they could understand because they didn't understand soul music. Totally. That's so true. And when you listen to one in a million and you hear those stuttering drum programming and that use of synthesizers. Yes. You think about drum and bass. A hundred percent trip hop. Totally. You really can hear those more coded as white or coded as whatever genres of music being sort of Trojan horsed into soul and R&B music here through this production. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned the Velvet Rope project, but if you listen to the title track of Velvet Rope, one of my favorite songs, it's very much rooted in freestyle, which is more Latin, but yeah. it's still that dun, 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 dun. Of course. And even God Till It's Gone samples Joni Mitchell. Yes, and obviously the house music on Together Again and the complete and utter electronica fantasia of an empty or something like that also feels like part of this as well. 100%. Yeah. And it was counterculture, Yeah, let's be honest. But it was feeding that audience something that they knew how to digest. Right. And also then you add to it just Aaliyah's undeniable cool factor. Oh my God. You know, you look at the videos for this record for the one in a million video of her laying on top of the hood of that car. I mean, yes. I think one of the most important modern day comps for people that didn't grow up in this is Rihanna. It's that person that everything she does is cool. She makes anything she does cool. And it also has that same sort of laid back feeling. Rihanna, often in her early music, especially, you wonder how hard she's even trying because it sounds so effortlessly cool. I feel like Aaliyah is very much 
got that same sort of vibe going on where it was like everything she wore, everything she did, anything she picked out, she made it cool. She was the progenitor of cool. Yes. Post Pondy Replay Rihanna. Yes, exactly. Umbrella and forward Rihanna, let's say. Yeah. But interestingly enough, there's five years that elapsed between One in a Million and Aaliyah's third and it turns out final record. But in the middle of those two albums, she produces what have become her two most enduring signature songs. The first of which is a single from the soundtrack to Eddie Murphy's Dr. Doolittle which is Are You That Somebody, which I would go ahead and classify as one of the most insane sounding songs that's ever been made. Truly bonkers. Absolutely. What would you describe Are You That Somebody? Like, like how can you even begin to talk about what this song sounds like? Are You That Somebody sounds like the food court at the mall sometimes. <laughs> if the food court was just full of Michelin star kiosks, right? Oh my God. There was just so much going on, but in such a good way. I remember really being so against that baby sound for a long time. My mom used to call it the crying baby song when it came on the radio and she'd be like, can you turn off the crying baby song? But now I can't hear it without that, right? Like I couldn't imagine. Oh my God, it's incredible. Right. It's magical. But at the heart of it, that beat. But it's Aaliyah singing. She's the centerpiece of that song. Right, 100%. The bells and whistles caused a degree of controversy, I guess. Audible controversy. Yes. But really, the star of the show is her vocals. Not even that baby. 100%. Tom Bryan described her as levitating over it, broadcasting an unflappable sense of ease, which I completely agree. Yes. That's the thing about the Timberland and Aaliyah combinations is he's throwing everything at the wall and making it sound absolute bonkers and nothing phases her. She's able to just completely glide or levitate through it. Yes, like the Matrix. Literally like the Matrix. I was at a event at the Clive Davis Institute earlier this spring that Jason King, who's also been a frequent guest on the show, was hosting. And the event was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, the two guys that produce all of Little Nas X, Take a Day Trip, Mm -hmm. and Timberland. And they were on a panel and Timberland, was talking about various of his classic hits and he said that he was inspired to create the Are You That Somebody beat after listening to the Oompa Loompa song from Willy Wonka and hearing the rhythm Oompa Loompa Doopity Doo And he said that he heard that and wanted to create a futurist R&B version of that rhythm. So you have this song that I think has got a very strange rhythm to it and also is the apex, maybe besides Get Your Freak On, of the way that Timberland beats are this jumble of drum programming in one part and then these giant vacuous spaces. Mm -hmm. It's so strange to listen to the rhythm of that song because as you said, it's like boom, boom, space, boom, 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 boom. 
Yeah. It's almost like if so much of boom bap or New Jack Swing era R&B and hip hop was so much about rhythmic four on the floor, like boom, check, boom, check. Right. Timberland scrambled the way that rhythm happened. And then you insert the sound of the crying baby in the mix and this staccato, hoedown, southern sounding guitar riff in the middle of it. It was so strange sounding in its time and it's still so strange sounding now. It's such a bizarre, incredible song. Literally bizarre. And the other thing is he and Jimmy Douglas had been finishing the beat and when they were about to finalize it, Timbaland said, wait, wait, wait. And he ran and came back with the CD with the little happy baby or whatever. <laughs> then he added it. And Jimmy was like, what is happening? The beat was made and then he inserted that. Yeah, and you talked earlier about Aaliyah and her ability to complement that rhythmic feel her kind of like, oh boy, space. I've been watching you. She's able to syncopate her entire rhythmic vocal delivery around this incredibly unpredictable rhythm. Mm -hmm. And the video for this, Kathy, oh God, I mean, talk about videos that changed my life. I'll never forget watching that music video. Her dancing, like her choreography, like she was so, so cool, so effortless. I can't help but think about Britney, another interesting counterpart to her who like, mm -hmm. you know, it was all effort. It was all sweat. Aaliyah almost made all of this very intricate choreography look like she was tossing it off in this way that was just so alluring. Like, I just remember being completely intoxicated watching her dance. She danced how she sang. She danced how she sang, exactly. Amazing. Right. Also important about Are You That Somebody, the introduction of Static Major as the songwriter who becomes a very integral part of Aaliyah's team on her third record. Do you want to just talk for a second about who he is and how he becomes involved here? Yeah, the late Static Major originally had been kind of attempting to do his own career before meeting with Devontae Swing and joining the Swing Mob as part of the group Playa, prolific songwriter and singer. I mean, a lot of people don't know that on Are You That Somebody, the person singing, you can't tell nobody. That's actually Static Major. No way. And in Genuine's Pony, when you hear, your honey, yeah. let's do it. That's Static Major. Oh my God, I didn't know that. He had a very flexible voice. I mean, obviously it was layered with the singing artist, but he was the person who complemented those harmonies in a way that was just brilliant. And at that time, he and Aaliyah started working together and he was someone who arguably understood her the best. Mm. And the reason why I would say that is because of how authentic the final project is when Static is at the helm. And consistently so. Consistently so. And that's not to say in any way that Missy and Timbaland didn't understand the rhythm of Aaliyah, but I think it was in a way where instead of taking a song, writing it for her and allowing her to improvise. It was sitting down with her by that point and saying, what do you want to talk about? Mm. Which I think changes the dynamic. Right. And you hear it in the sound when we lean into the third project. But for Static, this was the starting off point of really just hearing where Aliyah can go. Mm. This song is the most memorable maybe thing Aliyah ever put into the world and also the genesis point of the future of music. I mean, the amount of songs that feel indebted to Are You That Somebody. It's probably one of the best pop songs ever created, period. I don't know. Definitely top 20 most important pop songs ever made. And it was one of the only songs that charted through Radio Airplay alone. Exactly. Because at the time, wasn't actually released as a formal single, but... 
when we get into try again, which was also static. Yeah, which we can right now. So just to set this up, in 2000, a couple years later, Aaliyah is starring in her first major film, which is Romeo Must Die, and they release a song, Try Again, as a single from that that she again makes with Timberland and Static. That is, I mean, talk about incorporating dance music sounds. I mean, this is like acid house, EDM, hip hop, R&B. Yeah. I mean, this is another one of the craziest sounding singles of all time. What you do to get to me? What would you say to have your way? Would you give up or try again if I hesitate to let you in? So we can't give this song credit without also crediting Barry because originally, and I'm not sure if you know this, but this will probably like knock your head off, okay? Yeah, please do. It was supposed to be a song of inspiration. <laughs> right, I was reading this. So instead of try again, it was supposed to be like, you can be right. who you want to be, even <laughs> if you want to be a fireman or something like that. And Barry heard this and said, what? <sighs> no, you need to go back in and make this something good. I couldn't imagine this song being released with that sound and being like, you could be who you want to be, <laughs> even if it was a fireman, huh? Or Aaliyah singing that because her persona oh, is so gosh. centered around kind of sultriness, yeah. Right, Aaliyah singing about firemen? <laughs> Unless it's in hot like fire, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. One point of note I also want to make about Are You That Somebody is how fast that song was made. Mm. So they were given an opportunity to make a song for the soundtrack and Barry had told the label that they had a song already and they hadn't. Oh, interesting. So it was a very fast production. So with Try Again, what we start to hear is something far more centered. Because if you think about it, are you that somebody does sound like chaos? Right. In the best way possible. Yeah. Great chaos. Aliyah's One in a Million album kind of sounds like chaos. Mm -hmm. Because there was always just this rush to the finish. It doesn't sound rushed. Right. But there is a level of chaotic sounds to it. It's all over the place, song to song. The songs themselves don't sound rushed, but the overall thing sounds like a hodgepodge. Yes. And Try Again, I would argue argue is the first example of everyone getting to sit with something. Mm. And I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if they had like a ton of time. Right. But I just feel like that is such a focused and centered track. Yes. Laser. Maybe there's in their bag. I mean, this song is so crazy good. I listened to this probably like 15 times yesterday. I mean, obviously I've heard this song a zillion times in my life, but right. what is going on on this beat? It is so absolutely crazy. Like that growling synthesizer there's sitars, there's horns, there's a snaky, distorted bass line, there's Timberland's mouth noises, which are obviously like a huge part of his signature sound. And then there's techno elements, right. acid house elements. It's so thick and dense and atmosphere. Like That's why I kept thinking about this song. This song is atmosphere. It creates its own world. And that's a great thing about Timberland and Aaliyah's combination is that he creates these dense atmospheric worlds and she is able to just very lightly swing her way through them in a way that provides the human element to the chaos. It's just this very beautiful and effective combination. And this song bangs so hard. This song is so 
freaking good. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, if she literally left these two songs alone, she would be a legend no matter what. I agree. And it's like what I mentioned earlier about Prince. These songs are borderline full-blown avant-garde. The fact that this is a number one hit is actually nuts. These songs are crazy sounding. They're so crazy. I mean, you think about the greatest Timberland songs in that way. Get Your Freak On is similar to me. Get Your Freak On is a wild-ass song. Like, where do you come up with that shit? And yet, their ability to skate between innovation and the mainstream is something that a lot of pop stars, I think, aspire to, but very few can land that plane and create a number one hit. It's very rare 100%. for pop stars that aspire towards innovation to actually find a way to make that accessible to people. And I think that's one of Aaliyah's most enduring legacies. She had a great ear for the future and for pushing mainstream sounds to the very brink of what people could deal with, but keeping it still fun, accessible, hook-oriented. Mm -hmm. Very few stars have that level of canny instinct, and I feel like she really had that. The last thing I want to state about Try Again is her filialness to hip-hop's past. I mean, there's a very blatant refrain that Timberland uses, been a long time, shouldn't have left you without a dope beat to step to. Been a long time, long time, shouldn't have left you, left you without a dope that is an interpolation of an Eric B. and Rakim song. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a strong rhyme to step to. So there's this yep. constant sort of desire to continue to position Aaliyah in black music's past and as a product of the hip hop generation, even as she sort of is a futurist at the same time. Right from the beginning where she says she's a little bit jazz and she's a little bit Jeep, that persona emanates through a lot of these songs and expands through these songs. Well, it's also because there was a gap in between the album too and in hip hop time, two plus years is a very long time. Right. So when him saying it's been a long time, it's like, we're back at it. Right. And of course, Kat once again, the video. Oh my God, so good. Her in the fucking D&G bra and choker with all the diamonds all over them and dancing with the cane. Mm -hmm. Dancing with the cane? So good. God, me and my sister tried to do that choreography in our room. <laughs> oh my God. That video was everything to me. She was so cool in this time. I just want to convey to people that didn't live through it how cool she was. She's incredible. 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 So she's shooting this movie, Romeo Must Die, that ends up being released as a pretty big hit. There's a lot of promise for Aaliyah in her acting career during this time period. Let me tell you something, okay? Whatever my father and Mac are into has nothing to do with me. And in the midst of shooting that movie, she also records her third self-titled album, Aaliyah. So we've gestured at this album a little bit. Can you talk about how this album builds on One in a Million or refines what was happening on One in a Million and stands today to me as Aaliyah's real masterpiece album? What's happening on this album, which involves a lot less Timberland? I mean, Timberland's here on a number of the singles, but really is... A heavy presence on here in absentia, I would say. Yes. Yeah, so as we leave the 99 era into the 2000s, Aliyah starts filming Queen of the Damned. Right. And she has to temporarily relocate to Australia. Now, during this time period, Timbaland and Missy both become kind of embroiled in this battle with Barry Hankerson. Mm -hmm. So what ultimately happens is there's a split that happened between Aliyah and Timbaland inevitably because of the situation, to quote Lauren Hill, it's funny how money changes situation, right? Mm. Not to mention, Aaliyah has a small percentage in background as an owner. There's a lot of tension. Mm. So by the time Aaliyah is heading to Australia, she doesn't have her team with her. It's in that moment that Static is really able to rise to the occasion. Right. You have Static, you have Tank. It's a whole new team. Right. The difference is 
if we think about it, 1996 is the One in a Million Project. Mm -hmm. Missy Elliott releases her solo debut album in 97 Mm -hmm. and becomes a superstar in her own right. So by the time you're trying to inch into the next era of Aliyah and Timbaland's becoming the star producer, Mm -hmm. who's the star in the equation at that point? Mm -hmm. This allowed Aliyah to be the star. She was not allowed to be the star in her first album. Mm. Her second album was really just to make sure she did it. Right. These two singles from the soundtracks sort of crystallized her place as a star. Right. But how do you then become part of that team again mm. when now you're a superstar your mm. producer's a superstar and mm. your songwriter's a superstar mm. that is not easy to recreate and it's also not easy to come to terms with for anyone in the equation so by the time we get to the alia project you're talking about so much of static coming to the table. Right. He wrote almost every song on this album by himself. Yeah. At least credit wise, he is the sole writer on almost every song. Yeah. I mean, Aliyah is certainly a case study on what to not do when you're in a studio and get to sing and write and then not get the credit because you thought you're just part of the team. Yeah. But by the time we get to this project, she's in the driver's seat. Right. She is Hollywood's it girl. She's getting this very short but starring role in Queen of the Damned. Soundtrack darling. Everyone wants to dress like her. Mm-hmm. We forgot to mention the Tommy Hilfiger campaign that had happened years prior. She's the blueprint for fashion. Yes. And now she's recording her long-awaited album. And she's also a 21, 22-year-old woman at this point, which is a huge difference from being 17 and 14 or whatever. Absolutely. So now you're watching a project really take shape from a person who was not looking at today. She was looking at tomorrow. So that is what we get because what this was, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. was Aliyah's audition for switching genres. Towards? She wanted to go towards rock. Oh, I could see that. So she wanted to collaborate with Trent Reznor. She wanted to collaborate with Korn. That's why I Can Be is very heavily guitar. What if... The More Than a Woman video takes place inside of the engine of a motorcycle. We see a lot more of the black leather biker suits she's wearing. Mm-hmm. And the Queen of the Damn soundtrack, she wasn't a part of it, but it lent itself to that. She was working on the Matrix films. You know, when I think about Rihanna in the Run This Town video. Yeah, like the idea of a post-genre superstar. Right. Or you think the, about SZA's recent SOS album where she just literally could go from everything from pop punk to country ballads, whatever it was. It didn't matter at that point. It's like Aaliyah's setting the table for that kind of thing. So she was setting the stage for it. That was going to be, I believe, her next step. I mean, she was going to release a fashion line with her best friend, Kiyadada Jones. It was called Dolly Pop. Right. So they were going to release that in 2002. Yeah. And she's starring as a vampire in her movie. There was just a lot of elements of something so different. Mm. But there was always something dark about Aaliyah. Oh, for sure. But she was really leaning into the darkness. Yeah. Everything you're saying here is so real to me and what I also get from this record. A lot of darkness, a lot of experimentation, but it doesn't feel all over the place. It's very much held together in some sort of vision that is obviously her vision. This feels much more of a piece than any of her other records, even as it traverses a lot of different styles. And what's interesting is the Timberland songs, which are the lead single, We Need a Resolution, which is this fascinating Middle Eastern flute noise sampling, seductive song about relationship discord and a lack of communication between a mature couple. It has this sort of soap opera
proper almost melodrama to it. Yeah, it's about them fighting. And like an air of paranoia, like, what is he thinking? What am I thinking? Who's to blame? Am I to blame? And also, like many songs on this record, edges even further into experimentalism with this sort of lack of resolution in the chorus. You kind of don't know when the chorus begins and ends. It's this very strange song structure that I think she returns to also on the other Timberland produced single from this record, More Than a Woman. It's another song where the chorus kind of begins in the middle of a verse and then bleeds into the next verse. It's got this really strange, inconceivable sense of resolution, whereas most pop songs are very concerned with, here's the chorus and here's the this. They experiment with structure in this really interesting way. And then you've got a lot of different stylistic overtures. Obviously, Rock the Boat is kind of a foray into Caribbean-style rhythms. It has a bit of a jazzy feel. It has some 80s synthesizer feel to it. And again, thematically sort of deals with a woman setting the terms for sex that unlike the R. Kelly songs actually feels like it's coming from the perspective of a mature woman who's actually in control of a sexual interaction as opposed to a song like Age of Nothing But a Number where that was insidiously put inside of a 14-year-old girl's mouth. There's almost like a feeling of reclamation on a song like Rock the Boat of a woman who is demanding what she needs and wants from a man. Right. You know, you serve me, change positions for me, stroke it for me. There's this sense of right. female agency, pro-sex. And then there's a lot of songs that I think even when Timberland isn't present here, his sort of sense of experimentation and arrhythmicness leads into a lot mm -hmm. of these other songs. Like You Got Nerve is very Timberland-esque. <laughs> Extra Smooth has a lot of the squelchy synthesizer noises that Timberland is using. So their sense of playfulness and experimentation is present even in songs here that are not Timberland songs themselves. Yeah. But then she also like does classic neo-soul, like I Care For You. I was like, is this her homaging Gladys, bringing her career full circle? Or kind of responding to Angie Stone. I couldn't totally figure it out. Oh, Well, funny enough, I Care For You was actually recorded for another group that Barry was working with. The song is actually really old. It was from 96. Oh, yeah. But they wanted a Missy song on there. So Aliyah re-recorded it because her voice had changed tone. Yeah. But that song had originally been recorded by Aliyah five years prior. Oh, for One in a Million? No, as a reference track for oh, a group Barry was working with. I got it. I got it. I got it. And they were like, we need Missy on there. And this is another thing that I think is really interesting. Because by the third project, 
they didn't want to give off this impression that she has to ditch her entire team with every project. Right. Because the first project was that guy. The second project was Missy and Tim. And because there had been this distance, by the time we got to the third project, it was not going to have Missy and Tim. Aliyah had to go to Tim and get him on the project. Right. That's why we need a resolution. Everyone thinks it's a love song. It's actually them trying to work out their friendship. Oh, interesting. I'm tired of arguing who should be heard, who should be to blame, you know, all of these things. So it's actually them trying to resolve their working relationship. Oh. So the Missy component, they pulled a throwback song. Let's put that on there. So if anyone were to look at the project, they wouldn't say, oh, yeah, she ditched her whole team. It's like, no, yeah. the old team is still there. And then we're just trying to move into a different direction. Yeah. You know what else I love that you brought up earlier is the darkness. I really think that's a very important thing that I want to make sure we underscore. She was not afraid to deal with very complicated and dark and inhabit those things and be that person. There's the song Never No More that's literally about physical abuse and also as someone that was a victim of abuse I mean we don't know if she was a victim of physical abuse but was a victim of sexual abuse by an older man it was very interesting to hear her exploring topics like that in this music I believe that she very much was detailing what had happened to her in her past yes There is a sense of empowerment through woundedness. I think that she embodies that on a lot of this music. There's a darkness to this music. This is not shiny pop music. This is very complicated, complex, grown woman shit in a way. Right, I agree. So this record is a pretty big success. It doesn't match singles-wise the success of the interim songs of Try Again and Are You That Somebody. We Need a Resolution, a pretty experimental choice for a lead single, I have to say. A pretty bold choice for a lead single. Charts moderately well. More Than a Woman, I think, is supposed to be the second single, but ends up being the third single, if I'm correct. So actually, Rock the Boat was supposed to be the first single, but they didn't want her to release a hypersexual forward-facing track. And as part of the rollout, I think it was kind of mandated either by Barry or Timbaland that the song should be a Timbaland-produced track. So that's how the order happened. And Aaliyah goes to the Bahamas, right? Miami first, yeah. To film the video for Rock the Boat. And can you talk a little bit about how Aaliyah's life ends. So they hire Hype Williams to direct this video. They go to Miami to shoot it at the university in a swimming pool. That's where you see so much of the underwater shots. Mm. They can't secure a location on a beach in Miami because it's too much money. For whatever reason, they have a very low budget for this project. Not low by industry standards, but low enough because they've absorbed so many costs. Right. They were supposed to go from Miami and go to Jamaica to film. Then they found out that it was going to rain during the time they were supposed to film. So they move over to the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas. And while going there with a massive team and massive equipment, enough cargo that should have filled multiple planes. And it does when they head there. On the ride back, in an attempt to cut costs, they pack Aaliyah and her entire team and all of their equipment on kind of like a jitney jet and it crashes. Mm. What is the reaction to that in the broader pop space? And I'm curious how you feel like that early death, that untimely sudden death that shocked the world 
impacted her legacy? I mean, we touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but where was Aaliyah at the time of her death as a pop star? And where might she have been going? And how has her death impacted how we view her looking back 20 years on? So a couple things were at play when she passed away. If you were an Aaliyah fan, you knew where you were when she died, kind of like when Kennedy was shot. Right. Assassinated, sorry. You knew, I still remember. Mm -hmm. It got overshadowed by 9-11, which had happened a little over two weeks later. Yeah. So August 25th, 2001, we lose this pop star who was about to perform at the VMAs, right. who was about to release this film and then be part of a film franchise that everyone wanted to be a part of. The Matrix franchise was so exclusive and cool. And not to mention this album that was going to be her entry point into melding different genres. Right. So you have this artist who is going to be this multi-hyphenate yes. in a real way. And on the brink of her real artistic break, really just coming into herself as the peak of her artistry, essentially. Yes. And being known on a wider scale for something so avant-garde, yes. which was also unheard of as we entered into the new millennium. We were just drowning in syrupy pop music. Right. So to have someone who was becoming famous for her authenticity mm -hmm. was really rare. One in a million, in fact. Literally. So this was kind of snatched from her. Mm -hmm. And in turn, as fans, it was kind of snatched from all of us. Right. So I will argue, and I use this term loosely, that I do blame 9-11. Mm. Because I think by the time we had gotten over the global devastation of the Twin Towers, yeah. if you were an Aliyah fan, you remembered every day she wasn't here. But on a wider scale, you almost forgot mm. that this artist had this unrecognized potential. There was so much at play. And I think if there was anyone who, comparatively speaking, we saw that in years prior, I would argue Selena. Because Selena quickly passed. And I hate to say it because I'm not comparing artistic abilities, but we were able to mentally replace her with J-Lo. Right. Because she played the role in the film. Now, for a diehard Selena fan, that sounds absurd right. because of what she did for her genre. But in the same way, right after Aaliyah passed, right. you saw the significant meteoric rise of Alicia Keys, right. Beyonce. These other artists rose so quickly mm. after that point that it was hard to wrap your head around what could have been when it came to Aliyah. Right. Now, with the advent of the internet in a real way, I'm not talking about the dial-up generation. Yes. <laughs> As the internet came to be and we had more structured ways of pirating music, we witnessed this whole generation of kids who stumbled upon Aliyah and formed this mega fan base. And the parents of these kids and I talk about this in my book, that answering the question, where were you when you learned that Aliyah died? Yeah. We have our version of hearing the radio. For me, it was hearing Angie Martinez reporting on it on Hot 97 yeah. that evening. But there's also like a young child who's in the car with his or her parent and says, mommy, I want to go to an Aaliyah concert. Right. And their mother has to say, I'm sorry, honey, she passed away 10 years ago. Mm. So that's where they learned that Aaliyah died. We all have that story. It's just in different iterations. So for this new generation, those kids ended up becoming musicians. Yeah. So here they are creating music that has the electric guitars mixed with the soul. And they're wearing the bandeau tops and baggy pants. Mm. And they're experimenting with rock and wearing a lot of leather. And to people who didn't understand where it came from, everything seemed so innovative. 
And then in 2021, we have this incredible renaissance where now you can look and say, uh-huh, now we know where it came from. Because they released all the music on streaming. Yes. And it's like she's taken on mythic status. Absolutely. Her death, of course, it robbed us of so much music, but at the same time, it's immortalized this music. It's made this music mean even more than it did even on its own. It charted when it came back out. I treasure this music. Yes. I would have treasured it anyway because I love it. But I treasure it even more deeply because it's all that we have. Mm -hmm. I return to these songs over and over again and just love them for what they are and love them for what they portended and what we never got to experience. And for someone who released a fairly little amount of music in her time, yeah. the impact is so vast. You see her in, we talked about the stupidness of PBR&B, but the way that R&B music has come to be become the center of mm -hmm. the coolest, most innovative kind of music today. And all the artists from Rihanna to SZA to Kalani, the list is kind of endless in terms of where you see the long tail of Aaliyah's influence as a figure and as a music maker. Right. And that will live on forever. And this is the thing about artists that are taken from us too soon. We have to treasure what we have and we will always be left wondering what could have been. And that's just part of the heartbreak that overlays listening to this music. You listen to Try Again and it's both incredible fun and ecstatic and great and then you also have to have this underlying feeling of here was a life career and talent that was cut way too short and we'll never know what we missed out on and that is part of the heartbreak of the human condition i guess absolutely So it pains me to talk about this because it's so weird in these situations, but in terms of the pop pantheon. Yes, I've thought a lot about this. This is complex with where artists fit into the pop pantheon when we have such a truncated version of their music. Because on the one hand, we didn't get a full body of work, so it's hard to assess. But at the same time, she's mythological. It's beyond metrics. So where do you think she fits into the pop pantheon? I think while she was on this planet, she was a mere superstar. Yeah. And I think now she's that icon because... <laughs> Oh boy. Kathy, we're going to have to disagree. I hate this. This is why I argue this, okay? So the criteria is 12 to 15 songs. Yes. We have those. But like... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you can't tell the story of pop history without them. Agree. Once you're in tier one, you're here for life. She's in it in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Okay? Produce multimedia moments that defined an era and are still widely referenced to this day. Absolutely. Yes. At least one successful major reinvention or sonic or visual overhaul yes. that was as commercially and culturally important as previous iterations and probably more than one? Debate me. Debate me. <laughs> I love your passion. <laughs> And I, and I acknowledge. Well, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your inaccuracy. Keep going. <laughs> I'm going by the criteria in front of me. The thing about the Pantheon is that it's got a cold-hearted calculation to it. The people that are in that tier are the people that, if you're going to name 10 or 15 people that are literally the most important, most widely agreed upon pillars of pop history, that's who's in that tier. And to me, that's Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, Beyonce. It's a group of artists with decades and decades of music who have transcended generations, who have, when I say 12 to 15 songs, I mean 12 to 15 songs that everyone from a two-year-old to a 80-year-old recognized all of them and know them. And it's a level of ubiquity that she just didn't have a chance to achieve. So I, I think it's unfair to judge her because she passed away. I agree. It's not about our personal feelings. 
feelings about how great they were. It's about how culture situates them. Not to interrupt you, but I do believe that you have a strong maybe on Taylor Swift, who is still living out her story. And okay, I'll say this. I'll say while she walked the earth, mere superstar. Okay. Yeah. In passing a megastar. Okay. With the potential to icon. Look, I respect your opinion on this. I think the answer at the end of the day for me and the Pantheon at its coldest hearted is that Aaliyah was probably in tier four, unfortunately, but I think the mythology of her death and the long tail of her influence in this music maybe elevates her to tier three. So I think I'm comfortable putting her in tier three. So I think that's where I would like her to end up. Last question for you. What is an underrated Aaliyah song that we could send the show out on? I Can Be Mm. is my favorite. I would say don't know what to tell you, but ever since there's been like a lot of fascination with showing where Middle Eastern samples have come from and who produced whatever, we've heard it a lot more. I Can Be, I feel, is one of the most underrated Aaliyah songs. It was that turning point where she was headed and it's just a brilliant song and I love it. I love that one too. All right, so we'll go out on I Can Be... Kathy Iandali, thank you so, so much for being on the show again. Thanks for having me, Louis. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Aaliyah, she's officially a tier three mere superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the fabulous Kathy Yandali for being such an incredible guest. Of course, to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now. We're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Buy merch at Pop Pantheon pod.com join our patreon at patreon.com slash pop pantheon come to gorgeous gorgeous la tomorrow night and come to gorgeous gorgeous new york november 16th and until we meet again have a wonderful life bye bye oh.